Welcome to Policy Outsider, presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government. I'm Alex Morris. Higher education is a tool to help improve economic standing and mobility. However, for many individuals and families, higher education is simply unaffordable. Expenses such as tuition, room and board, textbooks, and other necessities are soaring. They are up over 22% between all public and private colleges and universities since 2008. Many students struggle to cover the costs and often incur tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Unable to cover these costs, many prospective students either delay or forego higher education altogether. The Rockefeller Institute recently examined the college affordability dilemma and analyzed several different child investment account models designed to improve access to college, including one that will be the focus of today's episode. Our guest is Layla Bozard, Chief of Strategy and Policy at NYC Kids Rise, a New York City-wide initiative aimed to help families save and invest money for college in tax-free accounts. We will talk to Layla about what are some of the program's core elements, how they measure progress and success, and what advice she has for policymakers looking to increase educational attainment. Coming up next. Hi, Layla. Thank you for joining today. Hey, Alex. Great to be here. So you are the Chief of Strategy and Policy at New York City Kids Rise. So can you give us a brief overview of what this is, what this institution is, and also a little bit of background of how you got involved? Sure. The NYC Kids Rise Safe for College program, um, it's kind of hard to talk about our organization without talking about the kind of program and platform that we've built. But yeah, we, we like to think of it as a tool that we've created to help families, schools, and communities work together to build assets and expectations of success for their students. I've been with NYC Kids Rise for about a little over a year and a half. I came from a decade actually working in affordable housing policy and neighborhood development and came to this work about a year and a half ago. I'd been following the trajectory of NYC Kids Rise and the Save for College program since its inception in New York City um, in 2017. And it was really compelled about the kind of type of model that was being created to support students and build, um, help build neighborhoods of economic opportunity. Um, so that's kind of how I made the pivot over from affordable housing work to NYC Kids Rise, or I should say that's why. Yeah, so you have a lot of experience looking at issues like accessibility, equity. Yeah, um, I have a lot of experience in neighborhoods and and what makes for strong neighborhoods. Um, I also did a lot of work um, in my previous role as a deputy commissioner at the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development on fair housing issues. I helped create the city's fair housing plan. It's called Where We Live NYC, where we really dug into the types of systemic issues, um, some historic, some present day, that create inequality in our neighborhoods and across our neighborhoods, unequal access to opportunity, and unfortunately, unequal life outcomes in the long term as well. Some of that is still rooted um, in the inequities across neighborhoods. So, yeah. Sure. Sure. And we're, we're going to cover all of that and what that means for New York City Kids Rise. Or should I be saying NYC Kids Rise? Is that the branding? Yeah, I would call it NYC Kids Rise. NYC Kids Rise. Okay. Yeah. And we'll get into some of that and some of its core elements later. Um, but let's just talk about 
college affordability, saving for college. Why is this important? Yeah. So I think something that most people who work in this space know and recognize is that higher education in general, not just college, I should say, um, even uh, intensive career training, both types of higher education are really important components of uh, increasing economic mobility, reducing inequality, um, and increasing one's lifetime income over time. So that access to higher education, we know, has a lot of long-term impacts. But we also live in an era of major income disparities, uh, a growing racial wealth gap that really threatens equity and inequality in a lot of ways. And because of those conditions, um, New York City public school students and their families really do face a lot of challenges when it comes to kind of taking advantage of higher uh, education opportunities as that means for, of economic mobility and stability. And so what you're trying to do here is you're trying to incentivize or encourage saving early, trying to get folks to families to start thinking about college as early as how old it might their first child be. Yeah. So, I mean, to take a little bit of a step back, I'd say our, our focus is really on access to higher education as that means of a tool um, for economic mobility. But it's not really just about getting people to think about college. Um, this is really about supporting students from a very young age. It's about kind of building expectations of success, building building upon this sense of belonging in a community. So, you know, we're really working to, we have kind of two core goals that are kind of our guiding star, I should say. One is to help students build assets. We want students in New York City to graduate with an actual financial asset that they can use for higher education. But the other is this kind of more effusive building expectations of success. And that really, a lot of the research does show that an expectation of success and a sense of support from your community goes a very long way in helping people uh, achieve stronger life outcomes. Our, our aim is really to be doing this work from a very young age, and we're really taking this ecosystem approach. It's not just about supporting students and their families. It's about engaging the entire ecosystem around a student that impacts their decisions, impacts their life chances. So we're engaged with their schools. We're engaged with community-based organizations, all the different types of institutions that impact a student. Um, where our platform really engages them in a way to have a role to play in both supporting the building of assets, but also giving that reinforcing message of we believe in you, you can do this. Yeah, that's what I that's what I find so interesting is that it's, you're looking at the maybe for uh, early investment as a tool, but it's not really so narrowly focused. It's really a program trying to bridge divides, increase access, and I, I, you use the term economic mobility, and trying to build assets, I think that's really interesting. That it's a it's a more widespread approach than just trying to get families with investment accounts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so I, in some ways, um, there are simple ways of describing what we do because it's in some ways about the account infrastructure. We want to make sure that every kindergartner now and the New York City public school student from here on out has access to an investment account for their future, but. Um, we're doing that through an approach that really touches on all of the different ways and co complex ways that people are impacted as they grow through it, the education system um, and try to achieve their goals. So let's talk about the mechanics of NYC Kids Rise. Walk me yeah. through what it is that you do on a day to day basis. What is it that what are your tools? How do you reach these families? Great. So I should say this 
Work started as a pilot. We are, this is right now our first year of going citywide, but I'm going to take a step back to 2017 when the pilot began. Um, and it's even worth saying that um, while the pilot began in 2017, the foundation for this work was being set even, you know, five, 10 years earlier than that through a lot of work in neighborhoods. And our, our executive director has been involved at Deborah Ellen Glickstein in this type of work her entire career. So it's almost an idea that started 20 years ago, but 2017 is when the pilot launched. And so what it is, is that every kindergartner enrolled in a public school a New York City public school. And in the pilot, this was in Western Queens. There were six neighborhoods that were in the pilot, uh, all within one school district, school district 30 in New York City. Every enrolling kindergartner automatically receives what we call an NYC scholarship account. It's invested in the New York 529 plan with an initial $100 seed allocation. And families can earn up to $200 in rewards um, for early engagement into that account. Now, we, we talk about our work as both a scholarship and a savings platform because um, it's this universal NYC scholarship account that every um, student has access to unless their family opts out. That's an important piece of this. Um, it's automatic enrollment, but there is an opt out process um, that families can, if they decide they don't want to participate, they can do that. But once that scholarship account is in place, families have the option to open and connect a savings account uh, for higher education that they own. They connect it through the platform. Um, that's part of the early reward system. If you open and connect one of your own accounts, you can get a $25 reward in your scholarship account. You get another reward when you make your first $5 deposit in that account. And the idea here being that it's not just about what NYC Kids Rides contributes. It's not just about what the community contributes over time, because and I'll get to that in a moment, but it's also about what families can contribute. It's trying to, uh, you know, there's a role for everyone to play here and building what we call the, the kind of capital stack for students. And then we work over time um, with communities who can contribute to groups of these NYC scholarship accounts. We call that community scholarships. Those in the pilot have taken many different forms and we're really excited about the different forms that it will take in the future as well as we expand to every New York City neighborhood. But this is a way really for communities to be tangibly contributing to students in their neighborhood or across neighborhoods and also demonstrating their support for student success um, through these community scholarships. Now, the community's role is not just about fundraising. There's other ways that community support comes into play. We worked in the pilot with community-based organizations, for example, that were taking kids on college trips, doing read-a-thons, uh, some CBOs that were working with families during tax time to understand how uh, these accounts can be leveraged during tax time. Um, so we've taken this approach where there's a role almost for every um, institution to play. There's a couple other things I want to mention that are part of the work um, and part of the it, the platform. So there's the scholarship and savings accounts. There's the community scholarships. But we've also been working in very close partnership with the New York City Department of Education, who's critical to this work, and on financial education curriculum extensions that students are taught in the classroom that kind of accompany the program, integrate information about the accounts into financial education that students get in the classroom. Um, and then there's financial education and empowerment that, you know, we work with families through workshops, through family community dinners, um, other direct ways where we're supporting families directly. You covered a lot there. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's a lot. That's why it's uh, in some ways, some people think of it as simple. We're providing accounts, but there's there's so much more to it um, when you dig in a little bit. And sure, I hope we can touch on all of that yeah. in a little bit more detail. So we talked about these scholarship accounts. 
or the scholarship awards. Uh, what I want to ask you is, what's the, what's the importance of seed money? What do you find seed money helps with families? Yeah, I would think of it in, in a few ways. One is it's really a, it's an early start. That's an obvious first thing. But it's really sends that message from an early, really early age for students and their families that you're not in this alone. Part of what it means now to be a New York City kindergartner, part of what it means to be a family that sends your student to a public school in New York City is that you are going to have an investment account for your child's um, higher education. So we're really obviously trying to help families start early, help engage communities very early in the different ways um, that they can be supporting their students. A lot of this, I should also say, is just providing a tool that communities can use to really leverage the work they're already doing. And um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more later on in the conversation about that because we saw some really beautiful examples of that in the pilot. But it really sends that message that you're not on your own. Um, we really want to be demonstrating what it looks like for us all to care about everyone's children in the, in the city. This is not just about you taking care of your child. It's also about how you can support other children in your neighborhood, in your school community, or across the city. And we're really excited to see how we can, we can do kind of cross-neighborhood um, support and engagement as well. Right. As you mentioned earlier, that there are different community partners that are co- you're trying to collaborate with or invite to participate in the initiative. So the program's obviously still evolving. Sticking on the seed money aspect, I, I find it interesting um, why. So we, we understand that getting a jump start is going to help families save, but were there economic studies, were there psychological studies that you guys have, have showed to, to the New York City Department of Education that says, if we do this, families are going to be more likely to save and then increase access to college, economic mobility, all of the goals that you have in mind? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this work is rooted in research that has shown that even small dollar accounts, you know, a a college savings account of one to $500, the research has shown can actually have an impact on a low income student getting to college and graduating from college. Um, William Elliott uh, at the University of Michigan is one of kind of the lead researchers on this. and, And there are others as well. But that research really goes to show it's not actually always just about the, the, the dollars. It's not just about being able to afford college itself. It's also about being able to um, provide, or it's about the, the impact that expectations can have on a child growing up that, you know what, um, college is for me, career training is for me. Um, I can take steps to achieve my goals. I can dream big. Um, and so it's really that message, um, that expectation that's demonstrated through those small dollars. And I do have to apologize. I keep saying college affordability when earlier you said it's, it's higher education. So I need to start drilling that in. But looking at your universe, who are you targeting? What families are you reaching out to? How are you determining what, uh, who needs the financial assistance or the literacy campaigns? Is it everyone that's enrolled in kindergarten or are there uh, income limits? Yeah, so um, our this this platform is universal. We talk about it as a universal community-driven wealth building platform. Now that can feel like a mouthful, but it it means something, and I'm I'm happy to explain what it means. But the universality of this is important. Um, think of it like pre-K. We've recognized 
um, as a society that pre-K is important no matter your income. And so we're trying to make universal pre-K a common thing. We're trying to do a very similar thing here. Having an asset from a very early age for higher education is critical to your success later in life. So we want that to become, um, and in New York City, it is now becoming um, a universal thing that families can have access to. It's also important for our ethos and our platform that we want to um, have families of all different incomes engaged in this work and this question of how do we, what does it look like for us to support all of our children? We ask that question a lot. Um, we don't want this to be something that stigmatizes families. Every family needs um, assistance in one way or another. Every family has assets to bring to the table, not just financial when it comes to supporting other people's children and their own. Um, so the universality of this um, is really important to us. And then I should say, when it comes to kind of trying to drive more assets into accounts, for example, through community scholarships, we, we are focused a little bit more on those um, students from communities that um, have historically been excluded from wealth building opportunities in neighborhoods, for example, that maybe um, are still dealing with the consequences of um, segregation or inequity. So um, it is a universal platform, but there's ways that we want to be driving um, additional resources progressively into accounts as well. Certainly a justice component to looking at this universe and expanding access to higher education. You're totally right about the systemic problems that have existed. So you've mentioned college 529 accounts mm -hmm. or 529 savings accounts. And I'm not sure if I heard it correctly that these those 529 accounts can be paired with the NYC Kids Rise program or are they separate? What makes them similar and or different? Yeah, so um, let me let me pull this apart a little bit. So our the NYC scholarship account that every student receives is invested in the New York 529 plan. Now, separate from that, from the scholarship account, families, and I, and I should say the scholarship account for students is owned and managed on behalf of each student by NYC Kids Rise. That's part of what allows um, people to participate regardless of immigration or documentation status, regardless of income. It also allows us to be providing these accounts and the assets without impacting um, a family's qualification for public benefits or impacting their qualification for financial assistance, for example. Um, so uh, that's an important aspect of the NYC scholarship accounts. Now, we encourage all families also to open and connect a savings account of their own. And in the program, they have um, two options, and we may be adding more options over time. One of those options is to open and connect their own New York 529 plan account. The other is through amalgamated bank. They can open a more traditional, that's not an investment bank. That's more of a savings, a traditional savings account. They have that option as well. So they have in the program two savings account options to for their own account. Are those savings accounts, uh, do they both have the same tax benefits? Well, the 529 plan is an investment account. Um, and so that comes with certain tax benefits that a more traditional savings account does not. The assets in it can grow tax-free. Families for on the savings side can also take deductions based on uh, their income. So uh, there's tax advantages to having an investment account um, that aren't necessarily there for more traditional savings bank Got it. accounts. Yep. Okay. And so the program, the pilot started in 2017. How many students were in that first cohort? Yeah. Um, and Alex, actually, if we can go back for a minute, there is something yeah, I want to say more on the, on the 529 accounts. 
so one of the things that um, I think the exciting aspects or, or something I find really exciting about the work that's been done through the pilot related to the 529 program is that we've worked very closely with the state comptroller's office, Thomas DiNapoli, uh, Comptroller DiNapoli, as they manage the New York 529 program. Um, we've worked with them to make what we call inclusive enhancements to the 529 program. So this is not just about families having this option to connect their own um, savings account, but we've worked to make policy changes with the comptroller's office that make 529s more accessible to your average New Yorker and particularly for lower income New Yorkers. So examples of that are we worked with them to take away the minimum deposit requirement. You can now open a New York 529 without having to make uh, a minimum deposit. They used to have an ongoing contribution minimum that no longer exists. You can now uh, make a dollar contribution if you want. We work with them to allow money orders to be a form of acceptable deposit. We've also worked with them to make some of their plan material available in Spanish. Language access is a huge issue when it comes to um, access to capital markets and even tools in general for wealth building. So we've worked with the comptroller's office to at least have some materials available in Spanish. So while our work is obviously about all those things I just discussed, there's also this aspect of the work that is about policy reform to try to break down the barriers to entry to using tools that are meant for asset and wealth building. So now focusing on some of the metrics that you use to define success as an organization and the program, the first cohort started in 2017. So they're still in grade school, probably, right? Yep. How are you measuring success? Sure. So to touch on kind of where you started with this question. So in the pilot schools, there are 39 pilot schools um, across six neighborhoods. And they're about those neighborhoods are Long Island City, Sunnyside, Woodside, Corona, Jackson Heights, Astoria, East Elmhurst, all in Queens. In that school district, school district 30, there's about 3,500 enrolling kindergartners each year. This program started in 2017. So now we, we've had about 13,500 students in the pilot schools um, that have an NYC scholarship account. That means 96% of the students that were eligible, these are now students that are in first through fourth grade, right? The kindergartners um, are in the process of being enrolled, but um, that 13,500 represents 96% of students that were eligible. So that is a first metric that we look at how many families are, are opting out. And so this 96% participation rate is great. Um, it means that families have decided this is a tool that is useful for them. Let's stick on that for just one yeah. second. Why would families want to opt out of this? One thing to note about the structure here is that this is a really close partnership with the New York City Department of Education and the city of New York as a whole. So it's a public-private, we call it a public-private community partnership. Um, we would not be here without those um, institutional partners. So through this partnership, the New York City Department of Education um, runs the opt-out process. We as NYC Kids Rise, the nonprofit that manages the Save for College program, we don't receive information about the students whose families have decided to opt out. And that's an important uh, element of this, of, of privacy and security. The, that 4% that has decided to opt out, we don't receive that much. We don't receive any information about them. But I will say, uh, we also have a policy where if you initially opted out, you have until your child's, uh, the end of your child's fifth grade year to change your mind. Um, and that can work in both directions. You can say, actually, I do want to participate. Or if you've participated, you can say, never mind, this isn't for me, I need to cancel. So we have anecdotally had 
had a number, not anecdotally, actually, um, had a number of families who originally opted out decide to come back in. And we've learned from those conversations that sometimes it's just a matter of misunderstanding. Um, a family not knowing um, exactly what this is, maybe feeling a little distrustful at first about another organization helping them, quote unquote, helping them, which is not, you know, the, the system and structure that we've put in place, but um, being a little skeptical about a new partner, right? And so a piece of this and part of why the partnership with the Department of Education is so important and the school, the role of the schools in this platform is so important is that we try to work through trusted organizations that really work firsthand with families um, every day. So sometimes it's a matter of miseducation. And the other reality is that is that everyone's financial circumstances are different. Families may have reasons where they've decided they don't need this um, or they just it's it's not something that they want to participate in. Sure. Thank you. And so uh, sorry for interrupting because we were talking about the other metrics that you use as a program to uh, defining success. Yeah. So look, this really is, I think, as as our conversation has, has gotten to a little bit, um, this work is is kind of multidimensional in a way. We work directly with families. We work through schools. We work through other partners. So for kind of each aspect of this work, we have set up uh, metrics of success to kind of guide us along the way. So one obviously is that initial one I talked about, um, how many families are participating. The other, we have a set of what we call foundational steps in the program for families to take building blocks. Um, is a family activating and viewing their account? Is the family connecting their own college savings account, college and career savings account? Is the family making their first $5 deposit? These are all what we call the building blocks. And we look very closely at family engagement um, in the short term along the way. We also, as I mentioned, we do a lot of this work through our partnership with the Department of Education and every individual school. Um, and we do professional learning and communities of practice with school partners. So we look at our metrics around our engagement with schools, how many schools are, are um, participating in our professional learning opportunities uh, and our sessions together. Um, what's the, you know, we do surveys. What's the feedback we're getting? Are these effective sessions? Um, are the tools we're providing being used? These are a lot of the short-term metrics. Obviously, there's uh, with this work, there's long-term goals as well that we're we're going to be looking at in terms of outcomes. Um, and I should say that during the pilot, we worked with the Urban Institute, who helped us develop a set of both short, medium, and long-term metrics to be tracking along the way. Given that this is so multi-dimensional, um, and that we, we were not going to be able to measure real outcomes for a number of years, right? We have the oldest students in, in the program right now are fourth graders in the pilot schools. This is just the first year of starting with kindergartners citywide. So we have a ways to go. Let's talk about that expansion some more. So this is your first year going citywide. What's the first thing you've learned as you do it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the first things is obviously this is not something anyone can do alone. This is a platform that was co-created by a lot of different partners. You know, the 39 participating schools in the pilot played a really important role in the creation of this whole platform. Everything from our branding to um, the types of activities and celebrations with students, um, they helped us to design. So I think one of the, one of the key lessons is just how many people it takes to do something like what we're doing. I mean, this is a massive undertaking and there were a lot of people along the way who who said it wouldn't be possible in a city as complex as New York City. Um, but there are a lot of people um, 
who have also really put their time and energy and their own social capital on the line to help make this possible. Couldn't have done it alone. Still can't. There's a long ways to go. Um, but we've gotten, you know, and, and this speaks to this idea of the you know, it sounds kind of jargony of this public-private community partnership, but there really is a role for every institution to play in this platform, and it wouldn't be what it is without people already having played that role. So our, our partners in the city who really um, decided to provide the funding to make this go citywide, um, the Gray Foundation, who was behind this from the very beginning to provide the funding to do the pilot, um, the superintendent of school district 30, Dr. Phil Composto, who really helped ensure this was a priority for all the schools in school district 30. Um, so the types of partnerships that it takes and the types of leadership and commitment from so many different sectors has been really important learning. Yeah. So cultivating those relationships, I'm sure is a challenge in any environment, let alone New York city. And, and you said the pilot started with 39 schools. And so now we're looking at how many schools, what's this universe look like? We're looking at just over a thousand schools. So it's all of the district's um, elementary schools across the city that have a kindergarten class and it's participating charter schools. So charter schools are public schools, um, but uh, charter schools had to opt in to participation um, and over 90% of them um, are on board. So uh, we we're going, we're scaling from 39 schools to over a thousand from 3,500 kindergartners a year to 70,000 kindergartners a year. So it's a big, um, big jump, but we're excited to be doing it. What are some other challenges that you've been facing as an organization during expansion? Um, you know, I think one of the interesting questions for us is really, you know, because this was a co-created platform and, you know, this and it's really intended and what has has occurred in School District 30 is that it's being used as a tool by local communities to kind of advance the work they were already doing in their neighborhoods, right? So there's this hyper localness of it. I don't know. I, I don't have a better word for it at the moment. Um, that is part of what makes this magical, right? Is, is communities using it um, as a tool to support their students in the ways that, you know, to kind of build upon the work they were already doing. So I think as we go citywide, one of the challenges that we're going to, um, that we're already taking on and, and going to kind of keep um, at the forefront is how you set this up in a way so that communities can still tailor it in the way that it is best going to serve them while also having certain things, certain aspects of the platform um, kind of be prescribed in the way that they need to be for the platform to work. So this kind of customization versus standardization when you go from um, one school district to 32 is going to be, I think, an interesting challenge to 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 deal with. And um, you know, it's already it, it's it's encouraging that some of the engagement we've had with school leaders so far has really shown that um, they're they're thrilled and excited, and we're excited to see the ways that they take this and run with it in their school communities. Um, and same with other community-based organizations across the city. Yeah, and I wish you yeah. luck in that endeavor. I mean, that's a, that's a serious challenge to expand from 39 schools to over 1,000, but uh, hopefully that you're, you guys have the infrastructure in place and the plan to uh, 
maintain those goals. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we, we often talk about our organization, you know, we, we manage this in partnership with the department of education and the city. Um, but we really see ourselves as a backbone organization. This is not a service that we as a nonprofit are delivering to communities. It's really a tool, um, for communities to use, to help their students, um, or support their students in building wealth and expectations of success. Um, and that's going to look different in different communities. Um, and we're excited to see how that plays out. Taking kind of a, a step back in like a 30,000 foot view. If policymakers were to consider expanding this program statewide throughout New York State, what advice would you give them? That's such a great question. Um, so first of all, I, I would say... I really think that a program like this can and should be statewide. And we at NYC Kids Rise stand ready and willing to work with and support whomever wants to help to make that happen. Um, but in terms of advice, I'd say it's probably most important to find your local partners. Um, I've worked in the federal government before, um, and sometimes programs can really lose their magic when removed from the hyper-local way that communities need and want and should use the tools that are provided to them. Um, so for us in New York City, it's been critical to be integrated in, um, into the social infrastructure of neighborhoods. Um, that's through schools, through local community-based organizations, through parent networks, local businesses. Uh, that's been a really critical part of our platform. So in going statewide, uh, I'd, re I'd recommend that policymakers find ways to similarly integrate this into the institutions that make up that ecosystem and network around a child and the institutions that impact their life outcomes. And based on our experience in New York, I really do believe you'll need some kind of backbone organization as New York City Kids Rise has served in New York to be that convener and organizing entity, a type of organization that can work closely with, with government, but be more nimble than government. Um, and one that really has the commitment to finding and lifting up local voices and, par and partners that will make the platform a success at any scale. That won't be easy, but it's definitely possible. And I'd be excited to see the state of New York take that on. Leila Bozorg, Chief of Strategy and Policy at NYC Kids Rise. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your insight. Thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Leila Bozorg of NYC Kids Rise for taking the time to speak with us today. To learn more about NYC Kids Rise and other models of child investment accounts, check out the Rockefeller Institute's policy brief, state-sponsored child investment accounts, helping parents save for college, helping students avoid loan debt. If you liked this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share. It will help others find the podcast and help us deliver the latest in public policy research. All of our episodes are available for free wherever you stream your podcasts. Special thanks to Rockefeller Institute staff, Joel Torado, Heather Trella, Brian Backstrom, and Laura Schultz for their contributions to this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Morse. Until next time.
Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, the public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following Rockefeller Inst, that's I-N-S-T, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? Email us at communications at rock.suny.edu.